Jesus has done for us. <laughs> Thank you for the reminder as we've just considered his great sacrifice, as we've remembered him through the emblems that are on this table. Thank you that you made the way, Lord Jesus, for us to enter into your presence. And so we gather there together as your people and we ask for your grace and your mercy uh, this morning. We ask that you would open up your book, that living and active, powerful word that you've given us that uh, goes deep down inside. doesn't just touch the surface of our lives, but gets right down to the core of who we are. And it... it uh, reveals to us what you want to do in us so that we might live to your glory. So I pray as we open the word now and we look a little more at it that you would freely speak to us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. We need your illumination. We need to understand uh, what you have for us. So help us to have hearts ready to hear, ears open to hear minds ready to receive and and implant the word in us as James put it implant it into our souls and produce change, fruit a life like Christ that would bring glory to him may ask us in his name, amen so over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 is where we'll be again this morning. Kind of overviewing Acts in a sense, but looking particularly at one paragraph that kind of is a summary statement of what life was like in the early church. And we, we've talked about the fact that there are many different metaphors for the church in the scripture. It's a temple. It's a body. It's, uh, you know, a, a, a flock. We're sheep. Uh, but when we get to the book of Acts and we look at the church, what it was like when it was brand new, when it was freshly born of God, we, we see it as a, a community of people, people with like purposes, like focus, like uh, desires, uh, like interests. And, and uh, we've talked about the fact that those there were three primary uh, things that their unity of mind was about, their unity of purpose was about, it was about exalting the Lord, lifting him up, and edifying one another, in other words, building one another up, and evangelizing the lost, taking the gospel out to the rest of the world, as Christ had commanded the disciples right before he ascended up into heaven. So we've been looking at it as a community of people. And the, the very first thing that we saw was that they were, in fact, a unified community. You know, the, Christ made that unity possible through his death, burial, and resurrection. He died that we would be one. One with him and one with one another. And the beauty of it is that he, he did that for people from all different kinds of backgrounds, ethnic origins, you know, came out of different religions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People that would in life normally be uh, enemies, and he's made them friends and brothers and sisters. And, you know, he took those people who were far off, and he's brought them near, near to God and near to one another. And he created unity for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. And we are encouraged to keep it, to keep it. And that is what the early church was doing. They were keeping it, 
They were a unified community. And then we saw some other things, and I, I want to read uh, uh, the paragraph that we've been looking at one more time. And you'll, you'll see as we go through this, these very things that kind of mark the community of God's people in the early church. That should also mark the community of people, God's people today. So starting in verse 42, this comes on the hill, by the way, of Peter's first gospel message after Christ ascended up into heaven. And, you know, it was an exciting day. Let's face it, 3,000 people had come to Christ that day when Peter preached the message. Now, this paragraph isn't on the same day necessarily. It really is a summary paragraph of what God began to do in the community of his people following that great day of Pentecost. So verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind, it's that unity in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a beautiful summary paragraph of life in the spiritual community, right, that Christ had made. And uh, in that paragraph, we saw some other marks. We, we talked about two of them last week. Started out with they were a unified community. Then we saw that they were a biblical community. Again, in verse 42, it said they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? Well, what was the apostles' teaching? Well, the apostles' teaching was the teaching of Christ. They had spent three years with him, being taught by him, and so they're saying the same things that Christ had taught. The sound words of Christ became the sound words of the apostles. And, of course, that was the Old Testament that was fulfilled in Christ. Christ said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but rather to fulfill it. And so Christ, in his teaching, kept on saying, uh, look at this in the Old Testament. That's me. I'm the fulfillment of it. Think of all those sacrifices in the Old Testament. They all look to me. Think of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple later on. That's me. Think of the high priest and what he did. That's me. Think of the, the uh, lampstand and the light. That's me. I'm the light of the world. Uh, think of the table of showbread. I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. Think of the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. I am the place of mercy. And that's what the apostles taught. And they were devoting themselves to it. And we talked about that a little bit. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that when, when we are gathered as God's people, what are we going to focus on? The Bible. We need to be a biblical community. Not a community about personal agendas and philosophical ideas and pep talks and, you know, everything outside of the Bible, which is becoming more and more common in churches or those that name themselves as churches of Christ, where they may read a verse and then they just go off on whatever they want to talk about that has nothing to do with the verse necessarily and nothing to do with the word of God. Just human philosophy and the elementary principles of the world. No, no, no. The church 
was and is to be a biblical community. It focuses on the word of God. Why? Because the word explains God. How are you going to get to know God if you don't read the word that he's given to us that explains him? And the word explains us. And we need to know what we're really like in comparison to God so that we'll see ourselves in a proper position before him. How does that happen? In the word of God. In the word of God. So we need to be a biblical community. We're committed to that. We're committed to that. And we need to be individual believers of the word as well. You ought to be reading your Bibles, studying your Bibles. Why? Why? So that you'll get to know God better, so that you'll understand yourself better. And you'll understand how God wants to use you in this world and in his community of people. Yeah, you you need to be in the word of God. You, You need to be people of the word so that when someone is in sorrow, you know how to comfort them with words from God. And not just that, oh, it'll be all right. Let me talk to you about God and his sovereignty and his providence and how he brings hardship into our lives. That, uh, you know, he does that for our good. You'll be able to do that. Or if you see someone in sin, you'll know, it's like, hey, hey, come on, what are you doing? This is what God says about what you're doing. That's sin, you shouldn't be doing that. And you'll know that God calls it sin. And then you won't just say, well, I don't think you should be doing that. Well, why? Well, I just don't think it's good. No, you shouldn't be doing that because God says it's evil. And here's where he says it. We become people of the word. People of the word that confront one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, build each other up, right? A biblical community. They were devoting themselves to it. We must devote ourselves to the word of God as well. And then we saw that they were sharing community. Acts 2.42 again, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And the word fellowship, koinonia, that Greek word, it means to have a part, to have things in common, to share things, to live life where we're open and transparent with one another. And sharing all things. We read it in the paragraph. In the paragraph, they were sharing possessions and finances. They were selling properties. They, hey, let me help you. We have a great need in the community. Let's, let's all contribute to this so that we're all doing okay. And they were eating their meals together, going from house to house. And I mean, that's a brief little window of it, but we should be doing that as well, shouldn't we? Sharing our lives with one another. Whether that's finances or, you know, it may be sharing a meal. Someone, you know, is not doing all. So you cook a meal and you take it over to them. That's fellowship. That's giving of yourself to them. Why? Because we have an equal part in life in Christ. He's made us one and so we share with one another. You've got hardship going on in your life. I mean, you're hurting and it could be in your marriage or it could be, you know, just things that you're going through, they, they've gotten you down, you're discouraged, you're, you're despondent. And we need to come along and share with one another our struggles so that we can lift each other up through the Word of God. You see how they work together? Unity of purpose, unity of mind. What mind? A biblical mind. 
so that then we can share appropriately with one another. That's the spiritual community. That's what marked the early church. And that should mark, and I think does in many ways mark our church. I mean, I, I give thanks so often for how people are willing to share their time and energy in helping one another. And how they'll come along one another and just you know, comfort them and pray with them. And so on. It, it, I think that's what we are. We can improve all the more. <laughs> I, I think I know that. I know that's true of me. I, I should be coming more and more like Christ all the time. And that includes my life within this spiritual community. Okay, let's get to the fourth one. They were a worshiping community. A worshiping community. So, again, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoted, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. To the breaking of bread. Now, don't think that that is talking about the act of eating. This was the common phrase which referred to the remembrance around the Lord's table. What we just did together is what that is a reference to. The breaking of bread became the common phrase describing uh, worshiping the Lord through the emblems, the symbols that he had given to remind us of his great sacrifice on our behalf. And the point is that they were a worshiping community. Now, they did it in the context of sharing meals together. We do it here, too. We share a meal together. We don't do the remembrance in the context of that meal, but we could. We, we disassociate them from one another just because we want to spend a, a part of our time in this room together focused in on worshiping the Lord by remembering him. And, and that was what it was. But, you know, the truth is the worship, the worship of the right God is incredibly important, but worshiping the right God in the right way is also important. And the scriptures demonstrate over and over again that God is seeking those who will worship him, right? Uh, but at the same time, he is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He said that in John 4 and verse 24 with the woman at the well, that God is looking for people who will worship him and not worship false gods. Worship him, the one true God. And, and, and that takes, you know, in spirit with Attitude. That's not a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's that I'm fully in this. I'm engaged in it. I'm sincere in it. I'm genuine in it. It's with my spirit engaged in worshiping God. But that also must be with truth. So, you know, the only way that a person can be qualified to be a worshiper of the one true God is by first hearing and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, Right? And that's how we come to know the one true God. They're qualified at that point to be a worshiper of God. But just having a relationship with God, oftentimes when they are new believers, when they've just come to know God through faith in Christ, they, they are oftentimes focused more on the blessings that they received from God. Great blessings, by the way. Joy. I've never had joy like this. Peace. Wow. God took away my guilt. I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Or, you know, uh, why he's, he's, he's cleaned up my mouth. What a blessing. I used to be such a sick mouth person. 
I mean, it was foul, it was corrupt, and he just washed it clean. What a blessing. Or, man, he's changed my heart. My desires are different. I remember I wanted to go out and get drunk with my friends. Now I want to read the word of God with my other friends. He just changes us. What a blessing, right? And we become, as new believers, that just overwhelms us. It thrills our souls and becomes our focus. But there's a danger there that we focus more on the blessings that he gives rather than the one who gives the blessings. We focus more on what we're getting from him rather than what we can give back to him because he's been so good to us. And so constantly, you know, new believers need to be taught the word of God so that they can develop into one who worships not only in spirit, but in truth. Each believer knows the right God to worship. Every child of God in Christ knows the right God to worship. They're qualified to worship him. But they must also be taught how to worship in the right way. Now, I say this in respect to there are so many churches out there that are not worshiping the right God in the right way. And some of those churches, I'm not even sure that they're worshiping the right God anymore. And you may not pay much attention to that. I, I kind of try to keep track of what's going on you know, in the church world, so to speak. And some of it is just downright appalling. And erroneous doctrine is overflowing. And so, you know, this is a, a critical thing, worshiping the right God in the right way, in spirit and in truth. So in regard to that, I want to I read a paragraph from a book by Robert Wentz. It's called Room for God, a Worship Challenge for a Church Growth in Marketing Era, which is what we live in. Worship that is not established upon an understanding that a holy God has qualified as sinful cre- uh, creatures, uh, being to worship him by, by grace alone falls short of the worship of the right God in the right way. Worship of God built upon any other foundation soon begins to reveal a distinct tilt. Much of what we call worship today reveals such a tilt. The foundational problem of our present age is that our theology will fail to generate true worship of God if there is no understanding of who God is and who we are in relationship to his holiness. Without an understanding of holiness, of the God who is a consuming fire, there is no proper understanding of human sin. Without an understanding of human sin, there is no understanding of the totality of our consequential alienation from God. Without an understanding of the consequences of sin, there is no understanding of grace. Without an understanding of grace, there is no proper motivation for worship and nothing to celebrate. Without a proper motivation for worship, we are left with either dead legalism and ritual or human-centered, uh, human-centered substitute for true worship that never takes our focus off ourselves and elevates it to God. This is the very thing that Greg was kind of referring to earlier when he says, what is the great danger? It's the worship of ourselves. You say, well, we're Christians. We don't do that. But we struggle with those things, don't we? We worship ourselves all too often. But when we get a proper understanding of who God is and who we are in relation to him, it takes us to our knees. 
and it draws out of us praise and adoration. Glory be to the Lord God who has been so good to us. It does. It does. You know, the Bible is very clear. It warns again against worshiping the wrong God. Read through your Old Testament. and Many of you have been reading through the Bible. You've read that over and over again. God warning the children of Israel in particular about worshiping of idols and what would happen to them if they didn't stay true to him. It's just so clear. But only when the church, you know, worships the right God in the right way will the glory of the Lord be fully manifested in our midst. And only then will the glory of the Lord fill the temple. By the way, again, that is a metaphor that is used of the church. We are the temple of God now. It's not the old building. We, the people, are the temple of God now. And we want the glory of God to be in our midst, don't we? Amen. Amen. But you know, that begs a question, and that uh, would be something good for us to be reminded of, or maybe it's new information for some, but to ask the question, well, what is worship? You know, if they were a worshiping community, what, what really is worship? And I think there's a lot of confusion about that in the church as well. I mean, most often when you're talking to people about worship, they are talking about music. Well, worship at church today was awesome. I mean, it was just a wonderful set of songs. I mean, it was so great to worship the Lord. And then, you know, the rest of what you do together in church is not considered worship. Isn't that weird? That's the general idea that churches have today, people within churches. Uh, There's been such a focus on music, particularly in the last couple of decades. I mean, it's, it's such a huge part of why people are even choosing churches for the worship. And they mean by that for the music. Worship is so much more than that. Worship is so much more. So, you know, the word worship, as it's found in the Hebrew and the Greek language, uh, emphasizes a physical posture many times, most of the time. It's a physical posture of bowing down, falling down, stooping, crouching, you know, getting on your face before a holy God. You know, thinking as Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. <laughs> you know, I, when Peter saw, recognized Jesus in the, in the simplest way in Luke 5, when there was a miraculous catch of fish, and Peter said, get away from me, Lord, I'm unholy. Even John the Apostle in the book of Revelation, you know, when he sees the Lord in his blazing glory, he falls down and he thinks he's going to die. He sees the Lord in his glory. And that is a, that is a natural thing. But you know, I, I, I think we've kind of lost that. You know, physical posture, you know, it doesn't mean everything, certainly. I mean, there, there is a, a lot of, uh, in, in, in worship music in churches, and I'm one who likes to do it. There's a raising of a hand or, you know, there could be, you know, kind of bouncing with the music. Nothing wrong with that. It kind of, you know, reaches you emotionally as well as physically as well as mentally and spiritually. That's, that's, that's okay. But, you know, sometimes we are singing songs about bowing down before the Lord and how many of us do that? Even if it's just a bow kind of at the waist. 
That would be a good thing. When we see the Lord for who he is and we see ourselves for who we are, we ought, we ought to think of ourselves, we need to fall down before the Lord. He is so much above us. He is so holy. And we can be so unholy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Have mercy on me. And, uh, you know, that was kind of built into those words. I've got a whole long list of verses that I could read to you. I'm not going to do that. That's just the meaning, the basic meaning of the word worship in Hebrew and in Greek. And in English, the word worship, if you look it up in a dictionary, if you've been around here, you've heard this before. It's a reminder to you that the, the word worship in English simply means worth-ship. Worth-ship. And it refers to the act of showing love or devotion or honor or reverence for someone or, or for a deity, if you're looking at it in the dictionary. Showing those things for someone or for a deity. I mean, you know, we can worship people in that way, can't we? It's like, I, I, I just worship my wife. She's so beautiful. She's wonderful. She so, means so much to me. Or you know, a lot of parents are worshiping their kids. Uh, you know, some people are worshiping their dogs or cats or or the cars or the house or you know they they and and what that basically means is it relates to the worthiness or the worth or the value that you place on that person or that object or that god and so when the children of god worship they are specifically revealing their understanding of the worthiness or the worth or the value of God to them. He ought to be everything to us. Everything to us. Some good definitions. Some, uh, these are fairly brief that I think are, are good summary statements about what worship should be to us. It's to ascribe to God his worthiness. So we tell God, you are worthy. You are this to us. You are all of this. We are thankful. You're compassionate and you've shown compassion to me. And, you know, it's declaring to God, you mean everything to me. Another person defines it as the total adoring response of man to the eternal God self-revealed in time. It's like, what? God revealed himself coming into this world coming into this world, becoming man. We would not know God apart from that. Jesus came and he explains him. It's the response of all that man is to all that God is and does. That's a good one too, isn't it? What's my response to all that I am in light of who he is and all that he does? And this one's a little longer. It's by Alistair Begg. Um, Worship is active communion with God in which believers, by grace and through faith, focuses their heart's affection and mind's attention on humbly glorifying God in response to his character, his acts, and his word. Good, good definition of worship. So that kind of brings us back to our text. 
Acts 2.42, it says they were devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, which was them remembering the Lord, worshiping the Lord for his sacrifice for them. Again, that was the common term that was used as the people uh, in Christ celebrated what God had done through them, and they celebrated it through symbol, through symbol. Yesterday at a wedding that I uh, officiated, there was, there was reference to a symbol uh, by uh, the bride as she gave uh, her purity ring that had been given to her by her, her parents when she was young. She gave that to her husband and said, I've kept my promise. I've kept my vows. It's a symbol. The ring isn't purity. The ring symbolized purity. And the rings that they exchange was a symbol, right? It's a symbol. I wear this wedding band as well. Now, I've had multiple wedding bands over our 48 years of marriage. Sometimes because I'm just hard on rings. And if it was gold, it was squashed. It was good. I worked hard with my hands and I would just bend them out of shape and they became weak and they became... You know, so it's not the ring. It's what the ring symbolizes. I am with her and she is with me and we will remain that way until death do us part. Symbolizes my love and devotion. Symbols are important, aren't they? And God uses symbols in his word to help us worship him. Think of uh, in, in the Old Testament. This was mentioned in the ceremony yesterday as well, how when God had the children of Israel finally enter the land after their, their disobedience and their 40 years of wandering and they crossed the flooding Jordan River like they had crossed the Red Sea uh, 40 years before, and God had told them, hey, pick up 12 stones. And I don't think that meant pebbles. It meant some big stones. Pick up some big stones, bring them to the other side, and you pile them up and you make it a reference to what I did for you. And, 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 and so when the other generations say, hey, Dad, what are those rocks piled up there for? That is to remind us that it is the Lord who brought us into the land by his grace and his power. Symbols. Symbols. Uh, of course, the tabernacle was full of symbol, symbolic things. You know, again, all the pieces of the furniture and the Ark of the Covenant and all of that, the tabernacle itself, the building, it all was symbolic about Christ. We've already mentioned that. And, and so we come to, to the Lord's table where we have bread and we have a cup and those are symbols. Symbol emblems that are a visual reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died in our place and took on himself our sin so that we might have a relationship with him. You know, through the proclamation of the word of God, like we're doing right now and what Greg was doing earlier out of the book of Hebrews, we're constantly retelling the story of God's love for us, aren't we? And, and this is the beauty of uh, the Lord's table and the breaking of bread. Through participation in the Lord's table, we are constantly acting out, not telling, but acting out the story of God's love for us. Powerful. Visual symbols. 
Now, some people are more visual than others, but anyone can get this visual. That Christ allowed his body to be beaten and broken. No bones were broken, but his body was beaten and broken for our sin. That he shed his blood. That's what the cup represents. It's not his actual blood. It's a grape juice that we have, but it is a visual reminder that he shed his blood. Because life is in the blood, he gave up his life so that we might gain life. Beautiful, beautiful symbol. And you know, the biblical roots for acting out this kind of, you know, uh, death of Christ in the Lord's Supper, it's actually found in the Old Testament Passover. The Old Testament Passover. I'm sure most of you, uh, you know, are familiar with that. You've read through the Old Testament. You get to the book of Exodus and you get the story of God bringing the children of Israel out of their Egyptian slavery by a strong hand, right? And yet Moses said, and the, remember the last plague that came upon them, the death, you know, of the firstborn and how the angel would pass through and all the firstborn would die of animals and of people, including of Pharaoh's family, from the highest to the lowest of men, right? The, the firstborn would die unless, as a Jew, you believe that God said, uh, sacrifice a lamb, put some of that blood on the lentils of your door, and, uh, you know, when the angel sees the blood, he'll pass over, Right? Well, it's interesting that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated the last Passover, right? The last Passover. Now, Jews still celebrate Passover, his last Passover, with his disciples. In fact, in Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, uh, he said, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he told them, this will be the last Passover, I won't eat of it this again with you until it's in the kingdom of, of heaven when we're joined together again. So it was to be his last Passover. And he knew this, this day was coming from the time that he had called them to be his disciples. He knew it long before that. He knew it when he entered into the world. He knew it from all eternity that he would do this. And it was during the course of the Passover meal that Jesus revealed that the real meaning of the Passover lamb was him. Paul put it in these terms in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was the fulfillment of that lamb being shed. And it is because his blood has been applied to our lives, the doorpost, if you will, of our lives, that God's wrath for sin passes over us. Passes over us. We still deserve it because we still sin. Even as those people who have been forgiven in Christ, how many of you don't sin? And see your hand if you think that's true. No, good, good. No one thinks that. It's important. We still sin, don't we? And we know that we, you know, in a sense, still deserve the wrath of God. If it was God looking at our lives and what we deserve, we would be out in outer darkness, in a place prepared for the devil and his angels. But when God looks at us, he sees the blood applied to our lives. And the blood of Christ cleanses us, doesn't it? And it makes us white as snow. He doesn't see the stain of our sin ever again. 
They are removed from us as far as the east is from the west and buried in the deepest sea. And like a cloud blocks out the sun, so he blocks out our sins. He never looks at our sins. He looks at what Christ has done for us. So it would be because of his own blood being shed that God's judgment and wrath would pass over the sins of his people who put their trust in you know, his son and his his death was him dying as a sacrificial lamb, the only way that people could escape the bitterness of slavery to sin, which is a lot worse than slavery in Egypt. In Luke twenty two nineteen and 20, Jesus said, said this. During the meal, they were celebrating the Passover, but during the meal, he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And passed around, they all partook of it. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So, you know, the the early Christians, they recognized the significance and the importance of this you know, remembrance of the Lord, the breaking of the bread. And they immediately began to celebrate it, not just once a year as the Jews celebrated Passover, but pretty much whenever they could. In fact, in in the book of Acts, as we read it in that paragraph, they were doing it day by day as they would eat a meal together. Someone say, hey, let's remember the Lord. Let's break some bread. This is Christ gave up himself for us Hey, let's take the cup. And he shed his blood for us. They were doing it day by day, house to house. And then later on, it became the fact that the church began to meet on Sundays. Why? Because that's the day that the Lord Jesus was resurrected. And so as they would meet, they would always remember the Lord. They would have the breaking of bread. They would have communion. They would have the Eucharist. All of those terms referring to the same thing. Eucharist is the word for thanksgiving. It is a time of things. Thank you, God, for saving me from my sin. Communion. We are sharing, you know, in life in Christ because he gave up his life for us. So it became so important for them. And you may not know this, but for all of church history up until about 100 years ago, that's what every church did, for the most part, every Sunday. When they gathered together for worship, they included the Eucharist, the communion, the breaking of bread. It was just what they did. And over the last years, the last 20 years or so, especially 20, 30 years, it's become an uncommon practice among evangelical churches to remember the Lord on a weekly basis. I think there is a resurgence going on where more and more churches are remembering the Lord more often. Maybe it's once a month or, you know, every other week or something like that. It had been lost for a period of time. Almost like the the word of God that was lost and was found by Josiah's, you know, workmen as they were cleaning out the temple. And it's like, wow, we found the word of God. And like some churches like, wow, we're rediscovering the importance of the breaking of bread worshiping God in that way. We worship him as we sing. We worship him as we sit and listen to his word like you're doing now. We worship 
when we share a meal together. We worship when we remember the Lord. And the early church got that. It was important to them. Why? Because there is no better reminder to us of how great God is. And that we're not great. I was thinking of a, a particular church for the and the pastor, and I, I say church loosely and pastor very, very loosely, but where there is never any discussion about sin. He will not speak on sin in the church. People know they're sinners, and they hear that all the time from other people. They don't need to hear it when they come to church. They just need to hear, you know, God's got a great life for them, and, you know, God's on their side, and their son's of God, and, you know, they're, they're all this, you know, all this and all this, without an understanding, and there's still this. This is important because it is a constant reminder, not only of God's grace and goodness and mercy, which we need to be reminded of all, all the time, but also that there was a need for grace and mercy for us as sinners because we were all born sinners and we, be, we didn't become sinners by sinning. We were actually born sinners who then learned to practice sin. And then Christ was gracious enough to forgive our sin. And we still sin. And he still forgives. He will not remove it. This helps us remember that. It, it should never be viewed as a ritual. You know, going through the steps. There are a lot of churches where they have that kind of thing too. They have visual reminders. But you talk to some of those people, it's like, yeah, we go to church, we genuflect, we you know, read the liturgy, and you know, we do this and that, and there might even be incense and that kind of thing. And it's all kind of meaningless to them other than that's what you do when you go to church. This is so important. It keeps us centered. It keeps us focused on what is most important to exalt the Lord. To thank him that we've been saved by him. And then ask him that he would use us to save others. Wow, that was one point. That was awesome. They were a worshiping community. Let's remain a worshiping community, huh? Let's worship the Lord. And let me, uh, I'm going to stop there. Keep, write it down. Some of you record it. Some of you that like to remind me of how late I sometimes go, you write it down. Keep a record on 12, 13, you know, 2021. Spencer let us out like 10 minutes early. It's not 12, but six, six, yeah. I'm half here and half not here, so, yeah, okay. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for our time with you this morning. That's what it's really been. We've, we've joined together, and we're glad to be together. And we know that we're together because of you. But this time that we've had, it's really been all about you. You're the, really the only audience that we should be concerned about. We don't need to be looking around and thinking what's going on in that person's life for that person's life. We should just be focused on you, individually as well as a group of people. 
We are so very thankful, Lord, and we praise your name that you've been so gracious and merciful to us, so good to us. You've poured out the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies to us, but you've also poured out many spiritual blessings here on this earth for us. You've given us this place to meet. You've given us each other to meet with. You've, You've provided... Uh, you know, so much for us, and you are so good to us, and we say thank you for it. But, Lord, we are most impressed as we look in your word and we contemplate the words that you wrote for our benefit and your glory, that it tells us what we need to know about you. And it tells us what we need to know about ourselves. As we see you and we see ourselves, we want to... Yes, we want to worship you. We want to humble ourselves before you and say thank you. We don't deserve anything that you've given to us. We could never earn it. Thank you that you are gracious and merciful. You are good. We praise your name. And thank you that you've made us one. Thank you that you've uh, kept us focused on the scripture and how important it is to us being a biblical community. And thank you that you've given us our lives to share with one another and we pray that we'll do that to the best of our ability. And thank you that we get to worship you through song and through remembrance and through the word and through fellowship each Lord's Day as we gather together. And then as we go out of here, we get to continue that very thing as we live life with one another through the week, as we encourage one another through the week, as we share the gospel with the lost through the week. So all praise and glory and honor be to you in your name. Amen.